You are listening to WVEWLP Brattleboro 107.7 FM, your community radio station, also streaming live online at WVEW.org. And this is Indigo Radio every Sunday at 1 p.m., and we also replay on Mondays at 2. Indigo Radio is a project of the Spark Teacher Education Institute out of Southern Vermont. We are a group of educators seeking to learn through engaging with others in our community and throughout the world. You can also find us on Facebook at Indigo Radio and on Instagram and Twitter. Our shows are recorded and will be uploaded to our SoundCloud and iTunes. The views and opinions expressed on this program are those of the hosts and guests, not the radio station. Happy Sunday, everyone. This is Anna for Indigo. I am a Spark faculty and also currently a visiting professor at Clark University in Worcester, Massachusetts, where I teach courses on public health and gender violence. Today, I put my students on the air as part of my What is Public Health course. Student groups were asked to create a PSA on a public health issue that affects college students. One of my groups concentrated on sexual assault on a college campus. Their podcast, Let's Talk About It, Sexual Assault at Clark, tackles the very real issue of sexual assault on their campus. By bringing in existing literature on this issue, my students, Bea, Claudia, and Sarah, investigate the structural causes of sexual assault and the underreporting of it. They are also joined by Clark's Title IX coordinator, Brittany Brickman, to explain more about Title IX and initiatives at Clark, as well as by Amira, who herself experienced assault at Clark. They hope this podcast can shed some light on an issue that impacts the entire Clark community and ways in which to move forward. Thanks, everyone, for listening. Hey, everybody, before the show starts, we just want to issue an official content warning. The following material is going to be talking about sexual assault and sexual violence and the statistics surrounding that. Um, So do feel free to either not listen or stop listening at any time. Enjoy the show. Have you ever heard of Title IX? Do you know what they do? The reporting process? No. Us neither. Let's talk about it. Hi, welcome to Let's Talk About It, Sexual Assault at Clark. My name is Bea. My name is Claudia. And my name is Sarah. Welcome to our podcast. Um, Today, we'll be talking about sexual assault at Clark. So for our podcast, each of us kind of took three different journal articles um, that were like investigations, researchers, uh, researches, um, and we are first going to tackle kind of an overview of sexual assault on college campuses in general. Um, and then we also talked to Brittany Berkman, who is the Title IX coordinator at Clark University, um, and Amira, who talked to us about her own personal experiences with sexual assault at Clark. Um, but before all that, a brief overview of sexual assault on college campuses in general. Um, for me, I read this journal article entitled Campus Sexual Assault, What We Know and What We Don't, written by William Beaver, who is the professor of social science at Robert Morris University. Um, so his one of the bigger takeaways that I really like from this article was that a lot of widely cited surveys used by policymakers um, to tackle different sexual assault issues, um, a lot of them have flaws in the way their surveys are structured, and there is large disagreement around um, the true incidence of sexual assault and what should be done about the underreporting of all these cases um, and the shortcomings of um, how different policymakers kind of view the issue. Um, so what Beaver did was he looked into two surveys 
the Campus Sexual Assault Studies Survey and then the Campus Planning Survey on Sexual Assault and Sexual Misconduct conducted by um, the American Association of Universities. Um, and just to set some baseline definitions for us, um, the CSA study actually used an umbrella term, sexual assault, which included um, a wide range of behaviors from rape, including oral, oral, anal, vaginal, and digital penetration um, to attempted rape and forced touching of a sexual nature. Um, and the results of this study actually found that most um, sexual assaults occurred between individuals who knew each other and that in those situations, alcohol had been consumed. Uh, but on the other hand, the uh, campus climate survey used the term sexual assault, um, uh, sorry, used the terms sexual assault and non-consensual sexual, non-consensual sexual contact, which included rape in the same types, oral, anal, vaginal, and digital penetration, as well as non-consensual touching, kissing, grabbing, groping, and rubbing um, in a sexual way. And this survey found that in the 2014 and 15 school year, 10.8% of undergraduate females actually reported penetration or sexual touching by force or inca inca incapacitation. Um, so those were the statistics that I pulled. Um, Sarah, what did you read? Yeah, so I read an article titled Rape and Sexual Assault on College Campuses by authors Julian Roebuck and, I'm sorry, Komandari Murdy, if I'm saying that correctly, both men, um, written in 2016. That's something I will also note. A lot of our research that we're bringing in was written by men. We are three women speaking about this issue, so obviously there's um, coming. we're coming at it with a little bit of a different perspective in that sense. Um, but these authors did um, essentially a meta-analysis looking at existing data, trying to look at patterns um, within the data that already exists, and really looking at the intersection of gender and social class within that. Um, I will say I had some issues with this article in terms of a lack of um, structural acknowledgement. They really focused on individual behavior as opposed to kind of the larger systemic reasons for why assault not only happens but goes very underreported. Mm -hmm. So they define sexual assault across a wide, quote, across a wide range of victimization of less sh serious than rape or attempted rape, including attacks or attempted attacks involving unwanted sexual contact between a victim and offender. Sexual assaults may or may not require force and includes grabbing or fondling. Um, they kind of bring in a couple, um, some statistics in terms of um, sexual assault. Um, and in, they, they quote Obama, Michelle Obama, in saying that an estimated one in five women has been sexually assaulted in her college years. Um, and they also note that in all of the cases that they looked at, um, those convicted of assault were always of a higher social status than the victims, um, which is really interesting given the kind of then lack of uh, explanation of these things within the article. They acknowledge that there is a structural um, you know, reason for assault and that there's a power dynamic in that people of a higher or of a lower class are much more vulnerable um, to being assaulted and they don't really do any, <laughs> you know, serious interrogation of that, um, which hopefully through speaking to Brittany and Amira will become much more clear. So mine was called Prevalence and Factors Associated with Physical and Sexual Assault on, on Female University Students in Ontario by three authors, Brenda Newton, David, and Lewis. So two men mm -hmm. and a woman. 
Um, so the authors examined the prevalence of physical and sexual assault on female university students and associated factors. And they did a survey where basically um, the the, there are different measures, the physical assault measures that the authors included were being pushed, hit, and uh, or assaulted by someone who has been drinking or by someone who has not been drinking. And the sexual apart, uh, assault measures included being sexually assaulted by someone who had been drinking or by someone who had not been drinking, being co coerced um, into having sex. And uh, basically, logistic regressions analysis revealed that assault was associated um, with the year study, um, alcohol consumption, illicit drug use, prescription drug use, unhealthy eating, and, um, and, stress and stress behavior, less time spent on academics, and more time involved in social activities. Which we'll definitely see. Yeah, we will, definitely, we, we will definitely see it throughout, especially with um, Amira. Yeah, mm -hmm. for sure. And across all of our research, we did find some good numbers. There were good, there were good statistics. Um, but the three of us do think that there's a clear need for kind of further inquisition or investigation into the structural and systemic factors, those true determinants that cause why, that cause sexual assault and how it's such a big issue. Mm. Um, and so um, how we approached our conversations with both Brittany and Amira, we employed this framework in commonly used in public health studies um, called the chain of causation model. We're in Clark University, we treat it as our environment, you know, since it is the private institution where we study. Um, the agent is the condition of being sexually assaulted. And then for our host, we specifically focus on female identifying students. Um, but on top of that, other structural factors we touched on in our conversations include um, patriarchal and systemic forms of oppression, um, capitalism, and still the need for profit, um, rape culture, and other kind of social stigmas that kind of um, proliferate across the student body. Um, and yeah, our conversations kind of helped us understand how these different factors interact to kind of affect like the vulnerability of female identifying students um, in Clark and kind of um, what should be done to improve what's, um, to improve how this issue is being addressed um, on campus. Yeah. So, yeah. Absolutely. And, um, it is important to note, right, that the majority of these structural issues are things that realistically cannot be solved without real, you know, changing of society and um, real critical consciousness as to who is most likely to benefit from an underreporting, who is most likely to benefit from a lack of comprehensive statistics, and where it is these private institutions that are wanting to bring students in, don't want to tell the truth as to what is actually happening on campus. Um, and then also, right, thinking about patriarchy and that um, throughout all of our research, we found that male identifying students were far more likely to be perpetrators of assault um, and female identifying students were far more likely to be victims of mm -hmm. assault. Um, so really recognizing that there is a true power, gendered, racial, class dynamic um, within this structure as well. More about Clark University's um, specific policies around sexual assault. Joining us is Clark's Title IX coordinator, Brittany Brickman. Hi, Brittany. Hey, how are you all? Oh, good. Um, can you introduce yourself a little bit and talk to us a little bit about um, like what is Title IX? 
Yeah, so my name is Brittany Brickman. Um, I have been working within Title IX in some way, shape, or form since about 2013 or 2014. Um, I previously worked in athletics and recreation for the first about decade of my career, um, transitioning fully to Title IX in 2021, um, right after the 2020 final rules drop, um, and then came to Clark back at the end of October. And Title IX has gone through a lot of changes. It was 37 words that was slid into the ERA back in 1972 and has taken on a life of its own since then. In 2020, the Department of Ed released what we are currently calling the final rule, which is a baseline of the minimum standards of how we address sexual harassment and sexual violence on campus. We are currently in waiting for the new final rule to be released um, under the Biden administration in May. They have said it will come out. And so right now we're in a proposal stage. We don't know what the implementation date looks like just yet, but we are reading new guidance on how to handle um, sexual harassment and sexual violence in our institutions. We're also waiting, the Department of Ed has said, there will be new NCAA guidance that comes out specifically um, in relation to transgender athletes, um, as well as Title IX now, at least in the proposal stage, um, has a lot of information about our pregnant parenting students. Thank you. Cool. So that's, yeah, yeah that's, wow, that's a lot. That's very interesting. Um, and can you talk to us a little bit? What is the process of reporting cases right now? Sure. So if anybody wants to report, they're welcome to report. We always know that survivors have the right to make no report. Um, we do encourage any survivor who does not choose to make a report to still get medical or counseling um, help and support. Survivors also have the right to make an anonymous report, whether that is via the reporting form on my website, the Rave Guardian app. Um, you can toggle the chat feature onto anonymous. Um, and chat directly with a dispatcher. So you can at least receive support and resources if you do that piece. Um, so you have the right to you know, report anonymously, but if you do choose to report, whether it is via the form on the online website for Title IX, via email to either my personal account or the Title IX email address at Clark, stopping into my office, um, giving me a call, whatever that looks like, I will, if you're not stopping in or giving me a call, I will send an email out that says, I received this report about you, um, that you know something may have happened that's interfering with your life. If you wanna meet with me, I would love to meet with you and learn a little bit more about your situation and how I can help. If not, totally respect your privacy. Here's some support and resources that are available to you though. I'll probably send one more follow-up email just to make sure that it didn't get lost in the like, oh, this was just a form from the institution that came out, right? Send one more email. And if somebody chooses not to follow through with that, that's quite all right. If they do choose to meet with me, we'll talk about what supports they have available to them, whether that's academic accommodations, res hall changes, no contact directives, um, safety escorts, things like that, and then what options they have available. So if it does rise to the level of a policy violation, we have three different buckets we can go in. One is support-based only. So that is sometimes a no contact directive kind of just solves what they're looking for, right? I just don't want this person to talk to me anymore. Um, the next would be an agreement-based resolution. So that is more of what we would consider a mediation, a shuttle diplomacy, a restorative justice, where there's no responsibility finding, but there is a formal agreement that takes place that 
um, the respondent, the complainant, and the university all agree to. Um, and if it's broken, we'll go through the conduct process. And then there's the investigation, which everybody thinks of when they hear Title IX cases, right? So that is actually fewer and far between. We don't have a lot of cases because it is a lengthy process and in its essence is re-traumatizing in a lot of ways. Um, so a lot of survivors choose not to go through that process. Um, and that is their prerogative and their choice. The investigation stage can last up to 60 days. Um, and then there's various time delays throughout. So 10 days to review reports, um, 10 days to respond to this report. Um, so overall, I would say from the notice of allegations to the end of an appeal, we're looking at like a three to four month window. So about a semester long. Um, so it's really, really long. Um, but that stage gets us to a responsibility finding, um, which would include punitive measures. So um, that's when we think about suspensions, expulsions, terminations, things like that. Awesome. Thanks so much for that very thorough explanation of all the alternative solutions you have. Um, I'm curious more about like the thinking that goes behind which intervention you choose to implement. More specifically, like how does the Title IX office here at Clark define sexual assault? If you have like a formal definition of that, um, and then based on that definition, like when exactly do you choose like when to intervene? Um, or are there cases where you choose to not intervene and stuff like I know you touched on it a while ago, but um, how does the definition also like affect that? I would say 95%, then this is not data that is actually verifiable, but about 95% of the time it is to 99% of the time, it is the reporting party complainant's wishes as to whether or not there is some sort of intervention. Um, it, you are in the driver's seat when you come into my office. There are exceptions to that though. Um, you know, if it is pattern of behavior that has come across my desk multiple times, right? Maybe to intervene. I will never do that without talking to the complainants first though. Um, if it is excessively violent, if it is um, a situation in which maybe there's an abusive power that's associated with that. Um, we may choose to intervene as the university or provide some sort of remedy, right? Go through that investigatory process. But most of the time, the complainant has the choice as to what bucket they go into. Um, the definition of sexual assault under the sexual misconduct policy is um, sexual penetration, anal, oral, or vaginal, however slight, with any object or sexual intercourse by one or more persons upon another without effective consent. Sexual penetration includes vaginal or anal penetration by a penis, object, tongue, or finger, and oral copulation by mouth-to-genital contact or genital-to-mouth contact. This definition also includes the touching of private body parts of another person, buttocks, groin, breasts, for the purpose of sexual gratification, forcibly and or against that person's will, or not forcibly or against that person's will in instances in which the complainant is incapable of giving consent because of age or because of temporary or permanent mental or physical incapacity. Um, so our misconduct policy really tries to encompass what sexual assault could look like for most people. Um, Perfect. Um, okay, so I'm going to um, add a little bit of like literature that we have found here and statistics, right? So according to Brenda Newton and like other researchers, 32% of female university students have, have been reported being victims 
of at least at least one type of assault the previous year. Do you know the percentage of female university students that who have been victims of, of assault in Clark? And can you tell us like what is the leading causes of, of assault in on campus right now? Sure. So I can't actually answer that question just yet. Um, I don't think we have an updated campus climate survey that we've done that I can in full faith give you an answer to that. Um, we are planning on doing in um, accordance with state and federal law, a campus climate survey next spring. So we will have data that's coming out. And then our plan is to have that survey come out every two years so that we really get an understanding of campus's climate and, and the cohorts going through. Um, so we really get like from our first year to our third year and then the second year to the fourth year, what that looks like as students are really moving through their time at Clark. Um, and then in terms of what I think the leading causes, of, it's hard to say, right? That we never really get a why. And that's really hard to hear is we never get a why did this occur? Um, I can speculate and I can give you my hypothesis and opinion as to why campus sexual assault happens. I don't think Clark is any different than any other campus. Um, there are certain campuses that obviously are a little bit more outliers, but when you think about a bell curve, I think we fall pretty much square in the middle there. Um, I think alcohol and drugs has a really big part in campus sexual assault. I also think before we even step foot onto a college campus, um, there's, there's a lot going on there, right? What did sex ed look like before we got to campus? What did bystander intervention look like before we got to campus? What are we teaching individuals about what healthy sex looks like? So not just wear a condom or use birth control, right? But what does healthy, good sex look like? Um, what does being a good friend look like when we talk about peer pressure? from both sides of, I'm not ready to have sex yet, but I'm going to because it's the cool thing to do. And on the other side of our stereotypical male identifying students of, well, this is what I'm supposed to do to be manly, right? So that toxic masculinity um, and what we're teaching. So I don't have a great answer for you, but I think that there's a lot of contributing factors. And the earlier we start intervention and sex and what healthy relationships look like with our children in elementary school and preschool, then I think we develop a healthier campus environment later on. Yeah, no, absolutely. I think um, the ambiguity, you know, within like what is the cause is something that we, you know, are talking a lot about for this episode, um, looking at, you know, structural reasons. Um, so, you know, adding to the literature, these researchers, uh, Roebuck and Murdy in 2016, um, highlighted a lot about social status, um, both within campus situations and also, right, larger, um, you know, society. And they said that typically, and I mean, this, they were looking a lot at Greek life, which we don't have here at Clark, but there was a lot of data um, surrounding white men of, you know, higher social status, you know, maybe they have more power within the university, maybe they're in Greek life, um, athletics, we saw as well, these researchers were talking about. Um, and they said that the in from the cases that they were looking at, the higher the social status of the perpetrator, the lower the social status of the victim was. Um, and I'm wondering if you've noticed this pattern at Clark or just in general, and um, if, you know, has Title IX kind of 
incorporated these kind of you know structural um, aspects into you know programs um, and you know how how do you feel about how Clark handles these cases of assault and do you think that anything should change? Sure. So I I I can't comment. I've been here for three months, so I I would be remiss if I gave you an answer as to if there's social hierarchy in terms of assault, um, especially with students. Um, at Clark specifically, I will say that is a stereotypical trend, right? That is, no, the researchers are not wrong when they look at that. Um, why do they look at that? Um, why did that come up? First year students, um, that first six weeks that um, a female identifying student is on campus, it, we call it the red zone. That is the scariest time, right? Um, and that's when you get those social hierarchies kind of coming in and saying like, that's where our most vulnerable population is, right? And right, they want to please they want to fit in they want to find their group um and that's not all the case right but we're talking in stereotypical terms but i think that's where we see a lot of that dynamic right um at clark specifically i will say at least since i have taken on i can't talk about anybody else um since i have taken on i treat every case as if it is a new case because it is um i treat every individual as the individual sitting in front of me um, I, I think Clark's policy has room to improve and we have a really great organic opportunity to do that with the new regulations coming out. I want feedback. I don't go through the process. I facilitate the process. Um, so I want to make sure that we are really taking a look at our students, specifically our students who have gone through the process and say, what would you have changed? What supports could you have used from the Title IX office during that period? of time. Um, what would you have liked to have seen different from the Title IX coordinator? Awesome. Awesome. Interesting. I want to zero in on the fact that, um, yeah, as one of the kind of research articles I read, there's this researcher, Beaver, who goes by the name of Beaver, he talked about kind of Civil Rights Act of 1964, if I'm correct, kind of mandates Title IX, right, to um, be the ones to investigate cases of sexual violence, um, you know, take the needed steps to especially prevent it prevent it, you know, that, that role is emphasized. Um, so I was just curious, like in your own personal opinion, um, to what extent have you found that intervention effective, like assigning a specific office um, to deal with an issue like this? Do you think that's effective? And in, even if you've only been in this role for, I think you mentioned three months, um, do you have any ideas for like how Clark, Clark administration can better empower you as a person to excel in your role? <clears throat> um, I, so my office is led with the prevention um, of sexual assault, violence, harassment on campus, but also to remedy it. So a lot of times, unfortunately, um, one person departments, like we see, um, like we are here at Clark, end up really focusing on the remedy because of just the time associated with that, right? Um, I am working on building up a team um, to work on prevention and workshops that really are able to educate campus. A lot of my work this semester has been education um, to faculty and staff and students about what my office can do, what my office does, um, what supports we can give. So I think education is the first step, right? And I'm hoping to work with orientation in the fall with bystander intervention and what that looks like. Because while I can scream from the rooftops that this is a horrible thing to happen and Clark doesn't believe in it, and one person. The campus community needs to believe it and live it 
in order to help prevent it. Um, but also, you all are students. I, I don't speak the language of students. So what is helpful and works for you, right? What are you going to hear? How are you going to hear it? How are you going to hear that not just this isn't okay, but not only is it not okay, we're going to do something about it. And how do we get that message across? Because sitting on a panel in front of 50 students isn't effective. What strategies are going to work? So I'm building a team that is built of faculty, staff, and students who care about this issue so we can work together on prevention and education efforts on campus to be able to address it and to be able to hopefully do some more bystander work so that if you're in an unsafe situation, you know that a friend with you or just some random person that is walking down the street sees you and they want to step in and help you. Mm -hmm. I also believe in the power of by bystander intervention. Um, actually, the same researcher that I mentioned, Beaver, um, argues that that is one of the most promising ways to reduce sexual assault on college campuses. Um, but then according to the survey um, conducted by the American Association of Universities, it was entitled the Campus Climate Survey on Sexual Assault and Sexual Misconduct. Um, that actually found that most institutions fail to kind of develop the proper strategies and pro programs needed to equip faculty and students with what's needed to actually be able to intervene. Um, but can you talk more about, you know, the projects and initiatives that you have already tried in Clark specifically? Yeah, right now it's really education-based at Clark. Um, we're just talking about the role. So every faculty and staff member, including student staff, is actually responsible employees. So if they see something or have been told something, they have to report that to me so we can get support and resources to that individual. Um, so right now my, my job is really to educate them on their role. Um, I also think that there was a study done um, by ATIXA, which is one of the Title IX um, organizations where they found that burnout amongst Title IX coordinators, um, the average burnout rate is three years. So I think um, something that contributes to a lot of the lack of bystander intervention is a high burnout and quick burnout rate from our Title IX coordinators. So I think what that really says is we need to not just have a one-person office. We need to really equip the office with more people, but we also need to charge other campus officials and other committees to exist that also takes some of the burden of this work so we can do it well. So you all went through orientation, right? Some of you more recent than others. You get a lot of information, a lot. And we try to cram all this information in in like three days. So how do we say this is mandatory programming halfway through your first year in your sophomore year? How do we get you there? How do we get you to this programming in order for you to care about it and tend it? I think we need to be better, all universities, right, need to be better about finding ways to reach our students, but our students also need to commit back to us that say, we care about this topic and we will show up for you so we can show up for each other. Going back a little bit, I know that we talked about um, that you are very respectable of people not wanting to report their situation. And according to Roebuck and Murdy, again, they they say in 20, this is 2016, that only 19.1% of instances are reported. Um, you can totally correct me if you think that number is different or if it's, you know, if that's the thing, it sounds like we don't really know. Um, and I'm wondering what you think, why do you think there's such a lack of reporting? Yeah, um, well, you all said it, right? You said it before is who's doing anything about it? Do you even know my office exists? Do you know what my office can do, right? So 
a lot of people have this preconceived notion that if I report something, that automatically means this other person gets in trouble. We also know some of the, and I don't mean to misquote the statistic, I think it's about 70% um, of sexual assaults are done by somebody that you know. I think that number is actually higher for college campuses. So um, a lot of times, especially on a campus community as small as Clark, if you know you're a talent and you're friendly or we're friendly or you run in the same social circle and you don't want to get them in trouble, and the only thing you know is if I tell Title IX, it goes to a case and it becomes this big deal, well, why would you report? If we can educate our students on what the process is, what it looks like, maybe then we can encourage reporting. But you also know fear and shame are real feelings. I think especially our female identifying population is really ingrained with shame attached to that, right? Who's gonna believe me? What's the aftermath of this? There's a lot that goes, societal constructs and barriers go into that, right? The lack of knowing, the, the unknown, the fear of the unknown, um, what that looks like. So yeah, it's a really underreported crime. Our LGBTQ plus community also, there's a real stigma and fear and shame attached there too, right? Sexual assault looks different for LGBTQ plus population than it does in our heterosexual population and our cisgender population. Can men, male identifying, right? Can they even be assaulted? Like, absolutely, 100%, right? But there's even more shame and stigma attached with that. Am I going to be outed? So there's a, there's a lot of reasons for it. And we don't, there's no one singular reason, but I'm hoping that if everyone starts to realize that my office provides support and resources and you don't have to go through a process, but we can try to remedy or get you through or give you supports through your the rest of your time at Clark, maybe we'll have at least more reports and understand what our numbers really look like so we can really target our prevention efforts better. So is there anything else, I guess, that you wanna add that we didn't ask you or anything else you just wanna throw out there to the people? Um, I just, if anybody is interested in any sort of training, right, what, whatever that looks like, um, workshops, things like that, I'm always willing to do them. I'm willing to partner with anybody, especially our students on what prevention works look like. Um, and just know that whether some harm happened to you on campus, off campus, before you got to Clark, like I'm still here for you and I'm happy to support you through that um, and connect you with resources on and off campus for that purpose. So I'm here, um, I'm here to listen, and I I wanna do right by the Clark community and I wanna make sure that you all have an open platform for feedback as well. So right now I'm running workshops on Tuesdays at three o'clock, a whole bunch of different topics, um, whether they're reporting requirements, the history of Title IX, a and a and feedback session. If you have questions or just wanna give feedback on the policy, or a process, I'm, I'm open to hearing it. So awesome. Awesome. Yeah. Thank, Thank you. you. So Thank you very much. <laughs> now joining us is um, Amira. Um, do you mind just introducing yourself? Yeah. Um, um, yeah. I'm a third year junior at Clark University. I'm an English major with a creative writing and sociology minor. Cool. Um, 
I don't know, maybe we'll college football. Awesome. <laughs> cool. Sweet. Um, I'm just going to go right into the questions, if that's okay. Um, to the extent that you're comfortable, can you tell us a little bit about your experience with the issue and how do you feel about the problem at Clark? And if you went like through Title IX um, process, can you describe your experience? Yeah. So my experience was um, basically I was at a party. I got I had a really bad day that day, so I was drinking way too much. And then by the end of the night, I was I was like past the amount of drunk where it was like except like yeah. acceptable mm -hmm. and the person texted me to come over and I literally threw up, mm. <laughs> washed my mouth and then like went downstairs and then they had to walk me to their room because I was so drunk and then sexually assaulted yeah. me. Mm -hmm. Um I didn't go through Title Nine because I because the the person that they are they left Clark. Um, they were really popular, especially in queer spaces, because like I'm a queer person, oh. and a lot of the people that I interact with are queer, and like a lot of the people I party with are queer, mm -hmm. and it's we're all like like Clark's a very queer. Yeah, mm -hmm. and I just felt really uncomfortable because they were so popular. Yeah, I was afraid because I felt like it would just I would lose a lot of friends mm -hmm. because it's like because they were they're in such a specific position in the queer community in our queer community it's like it would be a lot more divisive than if mm -hmm. i was like brad from basketball yeah. sexually yeah. assaulted me then everyone would be like screw brad blah, yeah. blah, blah. but because this is like a non-binary queer person yeah. people would be like really not and i did receive some of that pushback wow. um so i didn't go through title nine mm -hmm. because also i was drunk and i think that like yeah took me a while to be like yeah this is yeah. like really not all right yeah mm -hmm. Yeah, and it felt just, like, really divisive because I knew, like, with this person in particular, I say their name. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I can edit it out if you don't want no, it I, to be. Like, this person, their name was Benji. Okay. They It was, like, super divisive where I knew a lot of people would just be like, oh, that's my smoke buddy. Yeah. And it seemed very good. Uh, yeah, she, like, she also talked about it, like, just, like, the fear of, like, losing other friends yeah, and no, everything. Absolutely. It's, like, a lot of... My yeah. core friends were solid, but mm -hmm. it was, like, yeah. those people that, like... Yeah. They're your friends for very specific situations. Mm -hmm. and, mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. No, absolutely. Yeah. I'm going to um, add a little bit of um, um, research and literature that I mm -hmm. um, found. So according to Brenda Newton and other researchers, they identified that compared to fourth um, so year students, so seniors, um, first year female students were 1.5 times more likely to be victims of assault, and um, second year students were more likely also more likely to be assaulted than seniors. Um, can you tell us when were you assaulted and like do you think if you were a senior that would have happened and why or why not? I was a sophomore mm -hmm. and I don't think it would have happened like... I'm sorry, what grade were they in? Also a sophomore. The also a sophomore. Okay, interesting. interesting. Okay, yeah. Um, I was a sophomore and I feel like that wouldn't happen now just because like... I have like a much better control of alcohol usage. Mm -hmm. Like when I came to Clark, I had never drank before. Mm -hmm. And like, so a lot of, not first year, sophomore year was experimenting with alcohol with mm -hmm. me. Talking more about, like as we mentioned a while ago, that there are different factors you have to consider um, when you chose not to report. Mm -hmm. um, so a lot of research has found that um, many sexual assault cases actually go unreported. And 
Um, I just wanted to ask, like, in your own personal kind of understanding or your own personal experiences, do you have any ideas around the structural causes behind, like, number one, like, how, why sexual assault is, like, very prominent in college campuses, as well as why those cases go unreported? Um, so by structural causes, we mean, like, kind of the societal... Patriarchy, like, stuff yeah, like that, you know? Stuff that's super ingrained in, like, how society is structured. Um, basically, the systemic aspects and, like, how those contribute to um, why they go unreported. And also why, yeah, why you chose not to go to Title yeah, IX. Yeah. I think, very, like, even in queer spaces, it's still very much, like, a boys club. Like, this person specifically, um, I know, like, had a penis, and hmm. I, I refer to it as um, male socialized people, like, at yes. least for up until when they um, came out as non-binary, they were influenced and treated as a male socialized person. Yeah. And like Clark is a complicated space where male socialized non-binary people are still treated like one of the boys by their non-queer friends. And I feel like it just felt like nobody would take my side. Mm -hmm. And like, so sophomore year it happened, but I didn't start talking about it until the beginning of junior year Mm -hmm. because Mm -hmm. at this point, because after I was sexually assaulted, I had, like, seen them with, around other people, like, with other drunk girls. Mm, and, like, yeah. it made me if uncomfortable. And I remember my friends and I would be, like, telling their friends, like, make sure you take this person home. Like, yeah. I, like for instance, I, so I started telling people junior year, beginning of junior year, because I just wanted people to be safe. Yeah. Um, especially feminine identified people, which I think they were mostly was their yeah. t- targets. Can I also yeah. ask, is Benji white? Yes. Yeah. 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 Um, do you feel like that? Oh, yeah. Definitely. Yeah. yeah. Definitely. Yeah. In f- like, in fact, like, I know the group of people that I was afraid I wouldn't be able to hang out with in parties, and most of them are white, and the only one who, like, came to me and was like, I believe you, and I want you to feel comfortable was another person of color. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, we talk a lot about, um, with or from the research that I was looking at um, from Roebuck and Murdy in 2016, they talk a lot about how every case that they found, there was a, first of all, most the majority of people were white cis men who were either involved in athletics or like Greek life in some way and had some sort of like social power on campus. Mm-hmm. Um, and they found that every pers- every case that they looked at, the people, the perpetrator was of a higher like social class on mm-hmm. campus or just in general in society than the victim was. Yeah. And it sounds like you're saying that this person was very influential in the queer space that you were in. Yeah. And I'm wondering if that, you saw that dynamic then as well. Yeah. And for reference, since this is a podcast, I'm a black queer woman. Yes. yes. <laughs> so um, definitely, I just, like, so I felt like, yeah, people are definitely going to prioritize their smoking buddy. They're, like, mm-hmm. person who gives them stick and pokes yeah. you know, over, like, me or even if they do believe me it's still like you know what I mean yeah yeah absolutely and do you feel like Clark I'm wondering um how you feel about how Clark potentially handles cases of sexual assault what do you what what do you wish would change about that I wish that I wish we knew yeah about a title nine like just how like there's a sex offender list mm-hmm. title nine oh, yeah. list like pick and choose your battles if you want to be friends with somebody who has a title nine like somebody oh, who's yeah. Who has a title nine for stalking a girl? What's what's gonna stop them from stalking you? Yeah, yeah, yeah absolutely. And like in general, uh, in general, like dating on Clark 
so difficult because like I'm not even being hyperbolic but every time I would match with somebody at Clark on Tinder like a man yeah or a male socialized person I would then ask feminine identifying people or female socialized people do you know this person do you know this person most times except my current boyfriend they were all <laughs> yeah this person <laughs> this person this oh person yeah Ruthie, wow. this person wow, wow. Wow. Yeah. and I would then have to like ghost them yeah. or be like I'm busy cancel date like literally day wow. of wow so I just like wish there was a database or like yeah. something or people yeah. felt more comfortable things like that I don't know if I'm title nine made it obvious that if you put a title nine on someone mm-hmm. then you're in the driver's seat and yeah yeah I mean because the three of us I don't write three of us didn't know this information um, okay so for the next question I actually just wanted to preface with something I'm personally curious about um do you in any way perhaps regret that you didn't report your case do you feel like you would have it would have been better if you did I guess in a way I do mm-hmm. just because like I, well, they ended up leaving campus anyway because I started talking about it mm-hmm. the beginning of my junior year. Um, wow. I feel like if I did it sooner, maybe, I don't think they did ass- assault any more people afterwards, mm-hmm. but it's like, like they could have. Yeah. When they, because they're non-binary, they, not because they're non-binary, but because, like, this is just like, we're a queer space yes. so there's going to be feminine identifying people finding solace in this space yeah. and feeling like oh i'm safe i can get drunk at a party mm-hmm. here yeah. are my queer besties all yeah. around me yeah. Yeah. and like that false sense of safety with them mm. like could have put other people in danger yeah and like i don't know it's it's because like now i'm also in like a weird limbo limbo where like i don't know like the people that i do party with i don't know if i had been like str- like strongly this person has a title nine. I have a title nine on this person because they sexually assaulted me. If they would have been like, then I would just know, like because like know whose side they stand on. Because now with some people, I'm like, oh, I know that they went over your house after I told your yeah. friend that they sexually assaulted me, but I can't prove that they told you, so you didn't know. Like that yeah. sort of thing. And also, if they did end up going to, like, assault other people, even after that, like, those same victims could be experiencing, like, they could have experienced the same thing, they could have not spoken about it. Yeah, exactly. Um, But yeah, to pull in more literature, another research article I actually read about, um, this is a researcher who goes by the name of Beaver, he talked about how, on top of the need for more comprehensive data on the sexual assault cases on college campuses, um, which means basically we need students to feel more comfortable with reporting their cases. On top of that, there needs to be more kind of um, effective projects and initiatives to kind of, number one, equip other faculty and students to um, intervene if they notice something going bad, something going bad, you know, something Mm -hmm. that could be problematic. Um, On top of that, like, there needs to be better support, like, for victims um, so that they can feel comfortable enough um, to speak up about their situation. So for you personally and how kind of you um, dealt with what you went through, do you have any ideas with how maybe what Clark could do like as an, as an institution to maybe have like made you feel more supported um, to maybe possibly have like reported it? You know, um, that way? I feel like first the obvious is like explaining to young freshmen and sophomores that when you drink, like when people have sex with you when you're drunk, 
and without like your ability to consent like that also counts as sexual assault and they should be mm-hmm. found like as a bad person and then also maybe a campaign that it's like the people who don't stand with you after your sexual assault aren't your friends anyway yeah yeah, yeah. i'm Brittany, we talk with Brittany a lot about the importance mm-hmm. of bystander mm-hmm. intervention yeah. but just going off of what Bea said also i'm wondering did you what kind of like sexual assault education did you have before like what did you learn about consent in, in sex ed in high school like i'm wondering because Brittany really focused on that too being the importance of education mm-hmm. and what counts as assault there's a complete lack of definitions collect like or comprehensive definition as to what is assault um so i'm wondering like if you received that sort of education i don't think they talked about consent in high school i think i think like sexual assault was just like somebody nabs you off the street and takes you into their house Mm -hmm. not like not the fact that sexual assault you're more likely to be sexually assaulted by people you know yeah Mm -hmm. absolutely that sort of thing yeah yeah um, so I have one more question for you. It also has to do with literature that I found. And I know that you mentioned that during your sophomore year when the, this happened, you you were um, drunk mm-hmm. and you didn't know how to drink, That right? Yeah. <laughs> Basically. Um, so the authors in this literature um, are that assaulted women engage in dieting, overeating, overeating, or just like bulimic and like eating behaviors, like mm-hmm. bad eating behaviors. Um one, do you agree with the statement? Have you, ex- like, did you experience that before being assaulted? And um, they also argue that um, women who are assaulted were very st- stressed, sad, depressed, and engaged in alcohol and drug use. Um, did you experience this too um, before being assaulted? Um, so I had an eating disorder before mm-hmm. atypical anorexia mm-hmm. and I it probably got a little worse during that time just because my mental health was worse and I also already had depression anxiety OCD mm-hmm. um did I drink more afterwards no I tried to ignore it for a bit and yeah. then the way like how I know it did affect me is I did have my eating disorder recovery was a little rockier mm-hmm. in general at that time. Um, yeah. Kind of under, under understanding. So yeah. then I, like, stopped dating um, mask-presenting people for a while. Yeah. Yeah. That's very interesting. Thank you for sharing that. Did you... I'm wondering, so you said that you're queer. Um, did you... Did that impact your, like, female relationships as well, do you no, think? No, I or? actually had a girlfriend over the summer. Mm-hmm. I felt like because I spent more time like focusing on like queer women yeah. because I felt like mass presenting people like made me so uneasy for mm-hmm. a while. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, that's interesting. I feel like, you know, in terms of structural, you know, yeah. like patriarchy, yeah. like, you know, the that's yeah, very very real in what you said about male socialized people for sure. Um I guess the, the last thing would be like is there anything that you want to say about just two literally two Title IX, two Clark um and also, is there anything else that you'd like us to know that we just didn't ask you or we didn't cover? I think everything is covered. Um, I get on the idea of let's, let's let's have a sheet. Let's have it on a website. Yeah. People who have title lines. Yeah. Because I feel like like I'm, I'm a proponent of public lashings when yeah. it comes to sexual assault. Yeah. Like, I feel like it would help me. It would have helped me if I knew how many other people were. Like, I know that's not a a number that a university wants to rep. Like, we have 
100 Title yeah. Nine cases. No, absolutely. Mm-hmm. But it's like, it'd be nice if I was like, okay, out of 2,000 students, like, Title Nines are being reported by people. Like, it's not yeah. like a hush-hush thing. Yeah, and that was another thing. Brittany was unsure because of a kind of lack in the standards of collecting data, yeah. exactly, that she didn't know what percent of female-identifying students had been assaulted at Clark, which, I mean in all likelihood probably wouldn't be an accurate number anyways, but yeah. she, it's just, she was like, I can't answer that because we don't have the data. Yeah. Um, yeah. It'd be nice if there were some data. Yeah. Agreed. So that other people feel supported. Yeah. Great. Thank you so awesome. much. Awesome. Yeah. Wow. We really, really appreciate it. No I feel like I learned quite a bit today. Yeah. Um, I did not know that Title IX had all these different initiatives. Yeah. I feel like if that was more proper, properly kind mm-hmm. of promoted amongst the student body, um, maybe more cases would be reported and mm-hmm. there would be greater transparency. Yeah. Um, and I really appreciated how open Amira was. Yeah, absolutely. Um, it, cl- it makes me think about sort of just in general like the social statements in Clark mm. and yeah. um, how sometimes how personalized the experience really can be, yeah. which kind of invigorates how this should be kind of a case-by-case yeah. case solution. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. I totally yeah. agree with you. And I, I um, like how Brittany was talking about like how important it is like to educate mm-hmm. our yeah. student body and like yeah. professors and everything, because I do think that, yeah, we do have the, the beginning mm-hmm. of, like first year yeah orientation orientation exactly. thing that we have but we really don't pay attention to it because no. we are focusing on other things yeah. that she said like no, we want to find friends we have like um there's mm-hmm. other things that matter most for us and no i a hundred percent definitely think like education is ex- extremely important for yeah. this um topic that everyone should know what title nine is and what they do yeah and um i really do appreciate what amira did and how brave she was to about like talking to us about this whole sit like her whole experience and yeah no we still have a lot of room to yeah absolutely no I think um I think it really especially I agree with what she said about education was super essential and also the importance of bystander intervention right being a bystander um puts you in a really hard position as do I say something do I not say something but it's really important that as a community we feel support of each other and I don't I think that collectively we we can imagine a world where we can report and we can feel safe confiding in universities but I think structurally there needs to be a lot in terms of like we were talking about education and making sure that um the people who we're reporting to that we trust um and I think that with what Brittany was saying there's new legislation and and hopefully things can continue to improve yeah well thank you guys for listening to us Let's talk about it. You're back with Anna from Indigo Radio, and a huge thank you to my students, my Clark students in my public health class, Bea, Claudia, and Sarah. And also a thank you to Amira, who offered to be interviewed, and to Brittany, the Title IX coordinator at Clark. Thank you for all of your work on this podcast, really important information, and that, yes, I agree. We got to keep talking about it and keep on moving forward. Thanks, everyone, for listening to Indigo today. We're, we're going to go out with a song by Mary J. Blige.
I know your friends, or else you will get burned.